Well, as I mentioned already, it is the sixth day of Christmas tide. Remember, the 12 days of Christmas are not leading up to Christmas. They're the 12 days after Christmas, which is a common misconception. But I've been particularly determined to stick close to the Christian calendar this year, starting with Advent. And it's because I'm convinced that we are formed by the practices in which we participate. How we keep time, the calendars that form our lives, how we move through time, are part of the formative practices in our lives. Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith talks about cultural liturgies, cultural liturgies in which we often unconsciously participate. He even reimagines the mall as a type of temple, complete with its own rituals of confession and absolution at the cash register, with the clerk being a type of priest and the ads being a type of gospel proclamation. You deserve a break today. Treat yourself. This product will enrich your life. The religion that we're being formed into in America is the religion of consumerism. But I want to be formed by the faith that leads to being formed in the image of Jesus. So I want to be formed by the story of Jesus. And that's what the church calendar does. So I've been insistent, if, if you noticed, in these worship gatherings, I've been insistent on not rushing to Christmas. That's why last week I was insistent that it was not a Christmas Eve Eve sermon. It was a Advent sermon, right? So this week is the first Christmas sermon, because right now we're in Christmas time. And as, as I began to reflect on what Christmas means, my mind kept returning to something that I think about a lot, and that's how I used to think about Christmas. Growing up as a kid, uh, even into my teens, how I used to conceptualize Christmas. I had kind of what I would call a flannel graph view of Christmas. Now, if you're not familiar with flannel graph, that's okay. Actually, probably better that you're not. But if, but if you're not familiar with flannel graph, it's a teaching tool that was very popular. I, I have a theory that was popular in middle-class suburban churches, mostly. But it was this felt technology. Cut out little characters that you put on the felt board to teach children the stories of the Bible. And when it comes to Christmas, flannel graph cutouts of the baby Jesus and Mother Mary and Joseph, his adoptive father, shepherds, angels, the barnyard animals, that's the sort of thing that comes to mind. As if this analogy was couldn't be any more perfect, these cutouts are literally two-dimensional. And I'd expect that as you grow up, as we become adults, we, we leave behind two-dimensional versions of the Christmas story. But unfortunately, I've been disappointed to see that so many people remain stuck in a sort of sanitized and domesticated version of the Christmas story, a, a sort of flannel graph version of this Christmas story. And when that sanitized and domesticated story maintains its presence in our thinking, it manifests in how we honor Christmas, how we honor Jesus' birth and the incarnation of God's love. If Jesus' birth remains a safe, felt board story for children, then we're safe to compartmentalize it. We're safe to not let it affect our daily lives. 
put it on a shelf, it's there for children. If Jesus' birth remains two-dimensional, then it never has the powerful, transformative impact that it's meant to have in our lives. If it remains a flannel graph story, then it will never change the world. So that's why I'm titling this morning's message, Beyond a Flannel Graph Christmas, Reframing the, the Story of Jesus' Birth. And there's two primary ways that I think the flannel graph story continues to linger in our collective imaginations. First, we've sanitized the story by stripping, of it, stripping it of all its scandalous power, scandalous uh, political conflict. It's deeply political, but we've sanitized it. Second, we've domesticated it. We've robbed it of its wonder, of its awe, of its profound mystery. We've turned it into a history lesson rather than a deeply theological pronouncement, declaration. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2 this morning. But before we dive into the text, let's pray for God's Holy Spirit to illuminate the text to our hearts and to our minds. Would you pray with me? God, we come together this morning to look into a mystery, to peer into a deep, profound truth that you were incarnate in Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand that at a deeper level this morning. Help us understand how scandalous that claim is, how, how radical it is, how powerful, transformative it is for our world, for our lives, for this church. And I pray that it would have an impact in how we Continue to honor this season of Christmas and how we live it out in our everyday lives. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning and apply your word in our lives as you would see fit. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen? All right, let's start in chapter 2 of Matthew. If you have your own translation of the Bible, you are welcome to follow along. Uh, I'm going to use the NIV this morning. If you have questions about translations, I'm happy to answer those at any time. I, I'm nerdy like that. I love translation questions. But starting in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. He's lying. Okay. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened the treasures, their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until, you t- until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, you guys don't know that tradition? <laughs> you say, thanks be to God. Okay, no big deal. Um, these are familiar passages uh, for a lot of us. If you've been in church for just about any length of time, around Christmas time, you hear these stories. But familiarity can cause us sometimes to tune out. We don't really hear the depths of the text. We don't hear what's really uh, going on beneath the surface. Sometimes we overlook or undervalue aspects of the text. One of the first ways that we turn this into a flannel graph, two-dimensional reading, is that we gloss over and immediately sanitize aspects of this story by removing the offensive parts. When in reality, this story should be shocking. The story should, be, uh, should wake us up and cause us to ask questions. Questions about culture, questions about religion, questions about politics. Just for starters, we tend to gloss over this Herod character. Now, on the felt cutout, you know, we put a crown on him and a scowl, and we think we've done our job. That's Herod, right? But Herod is a deeply conflicted type of leader. If you understand who Herod is, he had very good reasons to be afraid of Jesus' birth. Number one, Jesus was born king. He was not appointed king by Rome. Herod was appointed king and became a puppet king, a vassal king, controlled, fully owned by Rome. This is one of the reasons why Herod was deeply insecure. Because Herod was willing to bow down to Rome's gods, even though he was king of the Jews. And because of this, the pious Jews of his day hated him. They despised him. And if Herod did not deliver to Rome a stable Judea, free of uprisings and rebellions, then Rome had no compunction to just dispatch Herod altogether. So, Herod had good reasons to be afraid of Jesus' birth. That shows us that this story is deeply politically charged. But so often we paper over that aspect of this historical and cultural context. Part of the reason why we do this is because we've been taught to, quote-unquote, not politicize the text. Have you ever heard that? Don't politicize the text. 
That's one of the accusations that gets thrown back and forth in the culture wars. Conservatives accuse progressives and progressives accuse conservatives. But what I want to show you this morning is that the sanitization that we do, when we strip these texts of their politically charged nature, that is also politicizing it. It's actually a form of, politi of, of, of making the text political. Let me show you how. This is a picture of the slave Bible. The slave Bible is on display at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And an associate curator of, uh, of the museum said this. He said, about 90% of the Old Testament has been removed and 50% of the New Testament has been removed. Uh, put in another way, this is another way you could think about it, there are 1,189 chapters in, in a standard Protestant Bible. This slave Bible has 232. The slave Bible was used to reinforce the institution of slavery and to remove those parts that slave masters were afraid would incite rebellion. Could have slaves think about liberation and that God is a liberator. So, for example, this verse was removed. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28. But what was, what was um, kept in the slave Bible was Ephesians... Uh, what is it? Ephesians 6.5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your hearts as unto Christ. That was kept in. So the text was highly politicized not by how it was used, by what was removed. And we effectively do the same thing when we sanitize the Christmas story. A text like Matthew 2. By glossing over its deeply political nature. One of the places where Matthew 2 absolutely, I think, resists this sanitization is in the slaughter of the innocents. That's one of the parts of the story that it's very hard to sanitize. Slaughter of the innocents is the traditional name for what we call Herod's decree to kill all the babies, the, the, the male babies in the vicinity of Bethlehem under the age of two. It might be easy to gloss over Herod as a conflicted political leader, but it's very difficult to gloss over that kind of genocidal devastation. Matthew, the, uh, the author of this gospel, sees in this event the, the, the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. He says that Rachel, Jacob's wife, is like the symbolic mother of all Israelite children who are suffering and who have been victims of military violence and political oppression. And she mourns again. Sometimes we need to see these deeper aspects of the scriptures. And sometimes it's not easy to see on the surface. I think that what, something that helps us, one thing that helps us is art. Art helps us to capture more of our imagination to help us to see the text from another perspective, to focus in a different direction. So I came across an artist uh, this past week, or maybe it was two weeks ago. Her name is Liz Weiss. And I, 
I want, I want to play you a rendition of Away in a Manger that she recorded. And I want you to listen to the lyrics as you think about this text, Matthew 2. Joseph, they fled in the night and they ran and they ran and they ran. Stay near me, Lord Jesus, when danger is nigh and keep us from Herod's and all of their lies. I love thee, Lord Jesus, the refugee king. And we sing and we sing and we sing.
the past couple of weeks, people have been people have been fighting the culture wars some more, and they've been going back and forth about whether Jesus was technically a refugee. That's what the fight's been about. <laughs> and there's been a few adamant objections to this term being applied to Jesus. Um, some people feel like it too closely aligns Jesus with the migrant caravan that was recently in the news and caused a lot of controversy. Personally, I don't know how you can deny that Jesus was a refugee. Here's a definition of a refugee. You ready? Someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, or violence. A refugee has a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Most likely they cannot return home or are afraid to do so. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I don't, I don't know how you get more straightforward than that. You have to flee in fear of being killed. Jesus and his family had to do that. So the irony of this was really pointed out to me by someone this week when they pointed out that the word in Matthew 2, chapter, uh, verse 13, for flee, is in Greek, fugo. Which turns into fugare in Latin. From which English gets the word refugee. It's literally there in the text. How would our hearts change, you think, towards modern day refugees if we saw Jesus as a refugee? Here's what one pastor wrote this past week. He wrote, in the flight to Egypt, we see the Holy Family as refugees. And once we have seen the Holy Family as refugees fleeing a violent Middle East despot, we must forever, it must forever influence how Christians view modern day refugees in similar situations. Listen to this part. In the eyes of God, they too are a kind of Holy Family. These acts of prophetic imagination, to borrow a phrase from Walter Brueggemann, are necessary for those who would read the biblical Christmas story with contemporary relevance and not just romanticized sentimentality. That's good. That romanticized sentimentality is what I'm calling the flannel graph Christmas. We sanitize the Christmas story, when we read it through the lens of the status quo, instead of reading it from the vantage point of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. These past few weeks, the slaughter of innocence has been on my mind because we live in a country to which refugee families have been fleeing, and twice in the span of just a few weeks, two small children have died while in government custody. Felipe Gomez Alonso, who was eight, died after being diagnosed with a cold. And Jacqueline McQuinn, a seven-year-old, also from Guatemala, died of dehydration. Dehydration. What would cause us to fail to see Jesus in the faces of refugee children fleeing violence in their homelands. A flannel graph Christmas not only sanitizes the story 
and keeps us from seeing the vivid social, cultural, and political implications of this story, it also domesticates the story. It, it, it strips the story of all its wonder, all its awe, all of its mystery. I'm talking about when we treat the Christmas story as little more than a history lesson. Facts about what happened back then. Propositional truths to be intellectually known. We can become so familiar with the story that it loses all impact in our lives. It stops moving us. It stops shocking us. It stops causing us to worship Jesus. The inspiration for this message actually came to me when I read this quote this past week. This is from N.T. Wright. This is a really scary thing. Not that Jesus might be identified with a remote, lofty, imaginary being that we call God. But that the real God, the one true God, might actually look like Jesus. A shrewd Palestinian Jewish villager who drank wine with his friends, agonized over the plight of his people, taught in strange stories and pungent aphorisms, and was executed by the occupying forces. To say that Jesus is in some sense God is to make a startling statement about Jesus. It is also to make a stupendous claim about God. By showing up in the particularity of Jesus' flesh, God reveals God's self in a very particular way to be a very particular kind of God. If the creator God shows up in human flesh, that tells us something powerful and theological about creation. That creation is good. That the creator does not despise creation. That the creator has not given up on creation. That the creator takes upon God's self human flesh. It tells us that bodies are good, that people are good, that creation is good. It means that God has come to redeem a creation and a human nature that has gone wrong. It means that God is in the business of restoration and reconciliation and recreation. If God has been made flesh in Jesus, then God has made a bold statement about where God shows up. God could have showed up in Rome because Rome was the center of the largest empire of the day. <clears throat> How many of you have seen The Family Man? It's one of my favorite Christmas movies. Oshita and I watch this Christmas movie every, every year. In the story, it's kind of like a Christmas carol, you know, Dickens. In the story, Jack is a powerful businessman who's a greedy miser like Scrooge. And he's given a glimpse of his life if he had married his uh, girlfriend that he left for business. Um, and he's in a suburb, like in New Jersey somewhere, and he has kids, and he has this wonderful life. But something inside him longs for Manhattan. He wants to live in Manhattan again and have all his wealthy toys, right? So he gets a job. This is in the glimpse. This is in the uh, other life, right? He gets a job in Manhattan, and he's telling his wife about it. And this is what he says. He says, 
This is the center of the universe. If I were living in Rome, Roman times, I would be in Rome. Today, America is the Roman Empire. New York is Rome itself, John Lennon said. And that's the way, that's the way we think. We think, if God is going to show up anywhere, God's going to show up at the seat of power, the center of the universe. But by showing up in Bethlehem, a tiny backwater village, in the person of a Palestinian Jewish peasant, God makes a startling statement about the divine and about power. That power is not found in wealth or popularity or strength. Power is found in holiness and justice and humility. Jesus doesn't gain kingship through his military victories, destroying his enemies. Jesus is born a king due to his relationship to the Father. By showing up in Jesus' Palestinian Jewish flesh, God shows something else about God's self. That God is not found in the dominant culture. God is not found in the dominant ethnicity or race. This is a theological claim that's very difficult for white people in America to understand. Because white people in America have been conditioned to think that the universe revolves around us. Remember when band-aids were called flesh-colored and they were beige? You could only get them in beige and they were called flesh-colored. And then crayons were called flesh-colored. And what color were they? Beige. Only recently, they started making non-beige ballet shoes. Did you know that? Ballet is over 500 years old. They only recently started making non-beige colored ballet shoes. Because ballet was for white people. You can turn on the TV or, or watch any movie and you're almost guaranteed that the stars are going to be white, most of the cast is going to be white, and that they're going to be the desirable, powerful people in, this, in the movie. White cultural normativity has conditioned us to see Jesus, Mary, and Joseph as white people. And they weren't. <laughs> they just weren't. That's a fact. Um, they were impoverished, persecuted, ethnic minorities. This is another place where art helps us to reframe the story. This is a piece called When the Child is Born, or When a Child is Born by Dr. Huh Che, or Chi. He's an artist in residence at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he has a PhD in religious art. His art challenges the traditional Eurocentric depictions of the Holy Family. Because we're so tempted in America to ignore or dismiss the cultural aspects of this story. We depict the Magi as foreigners sometimes, because the text says they come from the East. But we rarely depict the Holy Family as brown-skinned Palestinian Jews. And this failure, this whitewashing of the Holy Family, is part of the fuel that, that, flame, that, fi that fans the flames of white supremacy in this country. It's part of the reason why we see anti-Semitic violence like we did in Pittsburgh. This is part of the reason. Theology matters. Theology can be a matter of life and death. 
And it matters that we care about the context of the story. Finally, there's a third way that we domesticate the Christmas story. The way we flannel graph it. We are conditioned in the Western world to de-theologize stories like the birth of Jesus. Remember when I talked about Scooby-Dooification? You remember that? Scooby-Dooification is like in every episode of Scooby-Doo when eventually the mask comes off to reveal that the scary monster was the greedy banker all along, right? That's what we're conditioned to think in the Western world, that all of these supernatural stories in the Bible, there's some natural explanation to them. We just demythologize them. We disenchant them. But the Christian faith, the Christian faith, the essential, lowest common denominator, necessary Christian faith cannot be explained away by science, philosophy, or history. It just can't. Christianity claims, like it or not, that the God of the universe, the ground of our being, the creator of all that is, became a baby and was born in Bethlehem. And his name was Jesus. You can't get around it. But this isn't some abstract doctrine. This is something that is a mystery that we confess by faith. And faith is something that does not rest solely on evidence. I'm not saying that faith goes against the evidence. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm saying that faith goes beyond the evidence. That faith seeks understanding. But faith is like that journey along the way before you know where you're headed. Before you know where you're going to end up. I want to leave you with some poetry. Because, again, art is a way that we can sometimes see below the surface and peer into a mystery. So this week I found some, some excerpts from poems about Christmas that I think evoke in us that sense of awe and wonder again at the mystery of the Incarnation. Listen to this. This is from the 6th century. Assyrian. Him who dwells beyond the worlds the virgin bore today. Him who bounds the universe, earth shelters in a cave. This one is from the 16th century, a Mexican. Today you see in a stable the word speechless. Greatness in smallness, immensity in blankets. This is from Lucy Shaw, so naturalized American. After the white-hot beam of Annunciation fused heaven with dark earth, his searching, sharply focused light went out for a while, eclipsed in amniotic gloom, his cool immensity of splendor. His universal grace, small-folded in a warm, dim, female space. The word, stern-sentenced to be nine months dumb. Infinity walled in a womb until the next enormity. The mighty one, after submission to a woman's pains, helpless on a barn's bare floor, first-tasting. Bitter earth. <laughs>
This morning, you and I are invited to leave behind the two-dimensional, felt-board, flannel-graph Christmas. We're invited to move beyond its sanitizing and domesticating effects. We're invited to see the fullness of its socio-political, cultural, and theological power. Power to shape our everyday lives and transform us. My prayer is that Roots would be a community that incarnates the messy, the gritty, the beautiful love of God that's incarnate in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we, we come to you this morning wanting to be formed by the true story of Christmas. We want to be formed by the truth that you came in Jesus to declare that you are redeeming creation. That you have not given up on this world. That you are its creator and restorer and redeemer. We want to be formed by the story of a Jesus who was a peasant, an impoverished member of an ethnic minority group who had to flee persecution. The Holy Family, refugees. We're going to be formed by a story that makes us sensitive to the world around us, empathetic to the plight of those who suffer in our world today. Father, prepare our hearts to be the kind of community that displays Christmas hospitality. That we make room in our lives, in our everyday lives, to be formed by your love. A love that was willing to be made low. Willing to be humble. Willing to show us a different kind of power. A power in humility. A power in justice. A power in holiness. I pray that we would be that kind of community. Help us to every day resist the malforming effects, the domestication, and the sanitization of the flannel graph Christmas. And help us to live into that politically charged, powerful, transformative Christmas story. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to transition to a time of giving. I'm going to invite you to stand and, uh, and we're going to sing a few more worship songs.